It was the last and greatest day. <laughs> the last and greatest day of a festival. So if you've been here for all of John, or if you're here for the first time this Sunday, in which case, welcome. My name's Mike. Uh, let me set the stage for you. This is the eighth day of the Festival of Tabernacles, and this was a big deal in the life of the nation of Israel. God had set this up as a holiday for the people of Israel, and they made shelters for themselves as part of this. So it was like a week-long campout, and that's why there's some tents over here to sort of get you in the mood. Now, we should have probably have had like 20 of them to really get a better sense, but that's what the picture is for. Um, this week-long campout, it's kind of a Jerusapalooza, okay? <laughs> and people are in on top of each other. The people of Israel are forbidden to do any work on this day, okay? Now, Tim mentioned in a prior sermon that the crowd was large at the beginning, and then midweek, when Jesus shows up, it's tapered off, and now it's swollen to pretty much its, its peak, because this is the big day. So what we know about the details of this festival as it was celebrated in Jesus' time is a lot less certain uh, than what John tells us happened. But I want us to understand the festival uh, so that we can understand its significance as part of understanding what's going on in this greatest day and what Jesus is doing in this circumstance. So you can look up later Leviticus 23, verses 33 to 43. I'm going to summarize most of it for you. Through Moses, okay, God told the Israelites that each year at the appointed time, they would hold the festival of temporary shelters for seven days to honor God. They had a holy assembly on the first day, then presented gifts for seven days, and on the eighth day, they have another holy assembly. They gather impressive branches, they rejoice before God, they camp in their temporary shelters or tents. Every native citizen of Israel is supposed to participate in this thing. And verse 43 in Leviticus 23 says, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God says, Israel, don't forget who rescued you from Egypt, and they celebrate that with Passover, but who also provided for you while you were on your way to the promised land, which he also provided for you. There's God's provision to spring them from jail through no strength, no plan of their own. There's God's provision of a land to arrive at that was a good land, but there's also God's provision in between, and this festival is supposed to be a reminder of that. But if you are a student of human nature, or if you've done even a cursory reading about the history of the ancient nation of Israel, you'll know they forgot. We don't hear very much in the Hebrew Scriptures about the celebration of this festival. It's mentioned once during King Solomon's reign, it's mentioned once during King Hezekiah of Judah's reign, and then after the Israelites, they're deported to Persia, ultimately, and then they come back, and they re-inhabit the land, and they kind of rediscover their scriptures, their practices, and they rediscover this one. So you can, on your own time, read about that in Ezra chapter 3, and I'm going to summarize Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 18. 
the leaders gather around Ezra who taught the words of the law. They discovered, they didn't know because they forgot, they discovered the commandment to live in temporary shelters and went to go tell everyone throughout the country, we've got to observe this festival. So the people found branches in the hills, they made shelters wherever they could, it's on their roofs in some cases, it's in city streets in some cases, they're celebrating like it's 1999. Uh, the whole company that returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. They suddenly have a new appreciation for God's word because they're experiencing deliverance from captivity again. Funny how that works. It says, uh, let's see, continuing in verse 17 of Nehemiah 8, from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last day, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. All right, I don't know about you, I don't respond to regulations so joyfully, typically. But in special circumstances, that happens. Here's what happens, though. Between the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and the time of Jesus, some of the wheels of Israel's following God kind of fall off, and they replace them with triangles and squares instead of circles. Um, things don't go that well. So God doesn't say anything about this. Scripture doesn't testify to this, but secondary sources that we have from the era say that in the time just before Jesus stands here on the last and greatest eighth day of this festival, they had this practice where the high priest would take a beautiful ceremonial pitcher of water and pour it out on the last day of the festival. And there was a whole, you know, they'd follow him around and it was a, a, a big to-do. The thing is, I read accounts of a prior festival day in the first century before Christ in which the high priest, he innovates, and instead of pouring the water on the altar, which was the ceremony that they had decided to add, this guy was from another country, and in his country, the idea for a drink offering like this was you pour it on the ground at your feet. And what the crowd responded with has been making me laugh ever since, and so I'm going to try to keep a straight face here, but they pelted him with fruit. And so what was his response? As any good religious leader would do, he sicked the temple guards on them. And what we hear is that 6,000 people, Israelites, were slaughtered at the temple ground on that day because he did it wrong, they pelted him with fruit, and he said, I ain't taking that. So you tell me, do they have a handle on how to celebrate this? Is it fastened in any way to what came before? Not so much. And yet here stands Jesus in a crowd accustomed apparently to physically expressing its opinions on the right way and the wrong way of doing things, among religious leaders who John says for quite some time have been out to kill him. And here's what he's going to do. Before I talk about that, let me just pray. God, as we, as we go to the meat of, of the passage that Scott read today, I pray that 
uh, you would open our eyes to your goodness in your provision through all our confusion and unfaithfulness, all the things that get our priority instead of what should have it. And I ask that your word would speak to each of us in the way that we need to hear from you. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so John says, Jesus raises his voice and says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of water will flow from within them. So I have to stop and tell you, it doesn't matter whether you're pouring the water correctly if the water doesn't come from Jesus. It doesn't matter how sparkly the pitcher is or how fabulous your outfit is or how ornate your altar is. It doesn't matter if you spent extra for the Voss water, okay, and then poured it out of the cool bottle into the beautiful pitcher. If it isn't Jesus, it does not matter. And so my question to you this morning is, are you thirsty? As a young man, I believed in the God of the Bible. I knew a lot about him. But for a long while, I was not coming to him to drink. I went to some other things. I went to romantic relationships. That was a big one for me. I went to friendships. I went to academic achievement. I went to career success. I went to sound financial planning. And all of these things don't misunderstand me, they had an upside. There were good aspects to every one of those things. And the funny thing was, I was thirsty. And eventually, I realized it because I'd go from pitcher of water to pitcher of water, relationship, friends, career, whatever it was. Well, I thought that was going to satisfy me, but maybe this one will. And the next thing never satisfied me until the next thing was Jesus. So again, are you thirsty? And do you want a supply of actually living water? When John quotes Jesus saying he's a supply of living water, he's doing, I'm going to say three things. I mean, we could probably debate this and you could come up with more or argue, but... Here's my first one. He shows us Jesus' offer to this enormous festival crowd. He helps us. Something Jesus doesn't do, John does for our benefit. He explains that the living water is sourced from the Holy Spirit and flows from those who come and drink from Jesus. That's not what Jesus said, apparently. Maybe it was understood in the moment, and maybe it wasn't. John's helping us out. Verse 39 says... By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus is making a future promise of what's going to happen to those who come to him because of what Jesus is willing to do on their behalf. And I was thinking about this, this picture of, of a, you know abundant supply of something good, and uh, the image that I got was going to the mountains with my dad, who loves the mountains. And one of the things that he loves about the mountains is, um, I'm not sure I can explain this properly, but you're looking out the window, and there's snow-packed peaks, 
and then he, he, he goes, oh, the local water here comes from runoff from there. And he turns on the tap, and he sticks a glass under there, and just with such joy and abandon, you know, or he'll stick his whole head underneath uh, and just swig of this. It's cold, it's clear, it doesn't taste like they tried to compensate for the mineral balance. He loves that. And the thing is, the snowpack peak looks nice. But what everybody else in that area gets to enjoy is what comes from that. Ain't nobody skiing on top of those mountains. Ain't nobody going up there and grabbing some snow to eat it. But as it runs off, everybody in that vicinity benefits. And that's, I think, the picture that John is painting, that Jesus is offering. It's not just something for me. It's something for us. Second thing I think John is doing is echoing the Hebrew scriptures. I love this. In Isaiah 58, so God's message to his people is that he wants them to stop being exploiters of others, to care for those in need, and part of his description is how God is one day going to be in charge and oversee life like that. So Isaiah 58 verse 11 says, "'The Lord will guide you always.'" He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, a spring whose waters never fail. Now, the original hearers of Isaiah's message may not have had in their mind any idea of the Son of God standing in Jerusalem telling the festival crowd, I'm that supply. My work is going to provide you with the Holy Spirit who's going to be your ongoing source for yourself and for one another. But that was God's intention. Jesus is aware of what he's hearkening back to in the Hebrew Scriptures. And what if we didn't have to shove each other out of the way to get what we need because we could freely receive from God what he's glad to freely give? Oh my goodness. In Jesus, we get to experience that. I'm going to go to Isaiah again because it's lush with this kind of water imagery. Uh, earlier, chapter 44, God reassures Israel that even though their rebellion has led to painful consequences, there will come a reconciliation. And at that time, everything is going to be set right. So Isaiah 44:3 says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, we're initiating this phase of reality, people. And John says, I want you, my readers, to hear that. We'll hear soon about what the hearers on the festival day what they thought of that. But while the people are worried about the priest pouring the plain old water onto the, just the right place while holding their citrons in their hand, uh, John shows us a third thing by the way he uses this water imagery. Jesus also has in mind what his ultimate, real objective is. 
The prophet Joel explains this in Joel 3.18. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine. Ooh, we got an upgrade from water. And the hills will flow with milk. All right, wine for the dairy of earth. All the, uh, all the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of acacias. Jesus, who knows the Hebrew scriptures, who is the embodiment and fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures, you bet your life he knows this passage. And as he looks at the people who are caring about the priest properly watering the altar, what's going on in his head is this is how we're going to set it right so that God's house will water everything and the people don't have to water God's house in order for things to work right. <sighs> but that vision of a future in which God's people are at peace not only with God, but enjoying his presence requires something more than a king to decree it or a legislature to pass a bill or my individual best effort. And so I'm going to ask you again, are you thirsty? Do you want a supply of living water? And are you willing to go to Jesus to get it? So we already heard Scott read the passage, and we know there were a variety of responses to what Jesus said that day. So I want to share one more passage from a Hebrew prophet. Uh, I think it colors the expectation that the people might have had, not only about this festival, but about who their coming Messiah would be. And you can read more in Zechariah 14. This, is, this sermon is apparently my ad for various Old Testament readings uh, you know, hop on that if you want to. Uh, in it, God promises his people that Jerusalem will be secure at last. This is a city that got overrun multiple times, sacked multiple times. It's going to get trashed and looted by the Romans not that long after Jesus stands here. Says so that's going to be over, and God is going to afflict his people's enemies. Verse 16 in Zechariah 14 says, Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. We're going to need tents, people. That's so, uh, Verse 17, If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. There are two things emphasized in these two verses from Zechariah. One of them is that people who aren't Jewish are going to be coming to God's city to worship the king who is God himself. I get excited about that because I'm only 24% Jewish according to you know, my gene test. The other way to take it is finally all those outsiders are going to be punished for what they've done. And there's a certain political fervor with which some people pursue their religions. I'm talking about a certain vindictiveness that comes maybe from feeling like an underdog, taking hope in scores eventually being settled. When you think about what the religious leaders in the book of John have been saying and what they've been doing, what they seem to be all about, that's what they look like. 
vindictive, religious people. Now, some are grasping political power, and some are grasping something more like a, a popular legalism. Uh, so, you know, the making sure that the water is poured in the right spot and never, ever submitting to the God who provided the escape from Egypt or the water in the desert or the food in the wilderness or the land that they're now inhabiting even though the Romans rule it when this, this passage takes place. There are those who want to appropriate God's triumph and take it as their own. God is on our side is a slogan that can be dangerous. Do you know whose side God is on? God is on God's side. And the scene in John, as he paints this picture for us, Jesus is there because even though he is God, he by choice lays down his glory, his rights, and he does the will of the Father. You know whose side Jesus is on? God's, which means following him involves being on God's side, not having him come alongside whatever it was I was pouring before he showed up. Do you know whose side the people were on in this situation? Let's read again and see. Uh, verse 40 in John 7. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? So there's disagreement. Is he the new and better prophet that's promised in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15? Is he the Messiah? If you're not sure where we as Church of the Valley land on this, here's my hint for you. The Greek word for the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah, is Christos, as in Jesus Christ, as in Jesus the Messiah. That's where we land. But some of the people, they hear what Jesus says and his boys, and they go, I know that accent. Y'all are hillbillies from Galilee. Nothing good comes from there, right? They're wondering how anybody would be confused enough to think that he would qualify. We have, we have luxuries like accounts from the gospel writers of the circumstances of his birth, right? And you don't even have to be familiar with scripture to get this. We've got, oh, little town of Bethlehem, Right? It's sort of inseparable with that whole Christmas, Jesus-born kind of situation. <laughs> Nobody wants that, Tim. <laughs> but the people listening to Jesus on this day don't know that. They think they do know him. They think they understand where he comes from, and so they don't take him up on his offer. There's not any evidence that somebody goes, I want that! I'm so thirsty! Instead, he causes division among them. Verse 43, thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. All right, so nobody said, me, 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 and nobody said, okay, I'm taking him down. 
they're divided somewhere in between. And all of this is part of Jesus' mission. The fact that there's division, that's part of what he was there to do. Luke 12 uh, describes the separation of people who are willing to come to him and do what he says and those who are not. Uh, verse, let's see, Luke 12, 51. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? Despite the Christmas songs, Jesus' answer is no, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. Kind of rough. And so my question is, not only are you thirsty, do you want a supply of living water? Are you willing to go to Jesus to get it? Are you willing to give up everything and even everyone for him? By contrast, there is absolutely no division among the religious leaders. John tells us, uh, starting in verse 45, finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he's deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Oh, they've got an explanation, don't they? I think it's fantastic that the local constables, the Keystone cops, see who Jesus is. The Barney Fife or the Travis Jr. or the detectives Hitchcock and Scully, the least likely to detect anything, <laughs> they know. They know he's different. The religious leaders, though, have only scorn for these. They get to hide because they know the law. And so they're secure in their comprehensive knowledge of the law. Well, maybe they know the law, though we can certainly poke some holes in that but they for sure don't know the intention behind it. They don't know the heart behind it. And it turns out they don't even know the God behind it. But the guards have actually listened to him. And that's why their response is different. They heard him and they recognize his authority. The religious leaders never really listened to Jesus. They've always got, okay, I'm, I'm listening to know how to zing you back. There's nothing you can say that's going to convince me of anything, so I'm going to filter it out except for keywords. Fortunately, there aren't any people like that anymore. They feel free to write him off. And this is really most emphasized when Nicodemus, who earlier in the book of John came to Jesus under the cover of the night, Tim calls him Nick at night, he speaks up. Uh, it's a little tepid, but uh, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who is one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? It's an awesome slur, apparently. Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. I'd just like to point out that Jonah came from a city in Galilee, generally accepted as a prophet, though kind of a strange one, but that's another story, and we'll get to that another day. 
for today, I'm going to ask you again, are you thirsty? Do you want a supply of living water? Are you willing to go to Jesus to get it? Are you willing to give up everything for him? And are you willing on an ongoing basis to listen to him? And that's the chime that tells us that I've worked my way through the text. But I want to add something here uh, before we close. We've, we've come through, you know, what feels like a long way through John. Um, and as I was studying, John is doing something in this text with the word water. The Greek word that he uses uh, in, in this chapter, in this passage for the living water, hudor, it's a very common Greek word. He uses it 24 times in the book, and this one here is the 22nd time. We're only in chapter 7. So, I don't know whether the, the table that I have is going to be legible for you, um, but I've got a list of, there. it's used three times in John 1, five times in John 2, two times in John 3, ten times the king in John 4, once in John 5, none in John 6, once in John 7, that's our passage, once in John 13, and once in John 19. Did he forget about the word? No, I think, I think there's a fulfillment of this theme that just happened, and I don't want us, since we started John so long ago, to lose track of that. So, what happened? In John 1, Jesus was baptized in water. What does that signify? It signifies Jesus submitting to God's will, getting God's commendation, receiving the presence of the Holy Spirit visibly so that people could see what was going on with the Godhead. John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. What does that demonstrate? That this God-man had control over creation. He created it. He still controls it even though he's here as a human. John 3, it's the Nicodemus conversation, and he says somebody has to be born of water and the Spirit. Does that sound at all like what he just told us again when Nicodemus appears again? It explains that humans don't just live in a natural, physical reality. There's more going on than that. John 4, 10 times because Jesus is interacting with this Samaritan woman. They're at a well. She's offering to draw water for him, and they have a conversation about what she considers her whole life. What does that show? Huh. It's, it's like the Zechariah passage, where it says that all the nations who worship, come to worship God get to participate. That's Jesus enacting that in his time on earth. He goes to a woman, and he's a man, and you don't do that in that society. He goes to an outsider, and he's a Jew, and you don't do that in that society. He goes to an unrighteous woman, and he's righteous, and you don't do that in that society. So he's breaking down the barriers, and the water is a theme that ties it together. John 5, what happens? He heals the invalid who couldn't get to the pool that was supposed to heal him. Somebody else always got there first. And Jesus, I love this, Jesus didn't, didn't go, oh man, you're right, okay, hang on, the next time's coming up, let me scoop you up, okay, dump you in, 
ha, I was fastest. He doesn't need the pool. He's got the living water. He says, get up and walk. And so you, you and I, oftentimes we're so tempted to believe that the physical, the material is the point. Jesus is the point. That's what John is saying. Uh, this passage, Jesus provides rivers of living water, reinforces that. Who's the point? Jesus is the point. He's the source. John 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet in water. What does that tell us? That Jesus leads by serving, and he explicitly tells his disciples, you've got to do the same thing. If you're going to be like me, that's the water that's flowing out of me is service. John 19, last one. Jesus' dead body pours out blood and water for any who would believe. The blood and water, they serve one purpose, which is to testify to his literal physical death so that his literal physical resurrection has a meaning that promises something to us forever. The eternal, the eternal God for whom death, it's not even an option. That, that it's not possible to kill God. And yet he humbled himself and experienced it in the person of Jesus so that by that sacrifice, sin and death, which don't afflict God but afflict me and afflict you, could be taken care of. All right. One last text. I'm just going to read it. Isaiah 55, if you only go to the Old Testament one time because of this, you know, hyping the Old Testament sermon, read Isaiah 55 this week. Talk to somebody and you can puzzle over it or you can be excited about it. I wish we had time to read the whole thing, but let me read part. You're going to see some themes here. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and a commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not. That's us. And nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. And here Jesus stands in front of a crowd of his people, offering mercy and pardon to them. He's the beautiful fulfillment of what Isaiah is talking about in, in that chapter. He's the one who reaches out to Samaritans like you and me to run to him, to drink from him, and to be satisfied forever. So are you thirsty? Say, Mike, I'm a success-driven person, but are you thirsty? 
I focus on my family, but are you thirsty? I looked into Jesus, but I kind of came to the conclusion that he's not really the answer. But are you thirsty? What I've been chasing, Mike, is a good time. Are you thirsty? I'm too busy to think about Jesus. Are you thirsty? I was baptized, but are you thirsty? I'm not interested in Jesus, but are you thirsty? I'm a pastor, but are you thirsty? Let's pray.